Last week we talked about the gift of the scriptures of the restoration. I know the Book of Mormon and we talked about the role the Book of Mormon plays and I don't want to diminish that, but I wanted to introduce the beauty of the Doctrine and Covenants and maybe help you fall in love with the Doctrine and Covenants. I have not met very many people who say to me that their favorite scripture, their favorite canon, their favorite book is the Doctrine and Covenants. And I, I get that. It's hard to fall in love with. Um, but I just, I just, last time we met was just kind of a walkthrough, a, a brief walkthrough of the Doctrine and Covenants to show you how wonderful it is and to help you maybe appreciate it a little bit more. We could spend weeks talking about the doctrines and the covenants that come through this book. But knowing that we really only have two weeks to do so, and it's going to take two weeks to do one topic, I'm just going to go right for what I would consider one of the landmark sections. Now, not all sections of the Doctrine and Covenants are of equal worth. And there are some sections that are far more significant to us than the other sections. And I want to talk about one of those. It's not the degrees of glory. It's not section 76. Let me see if I can set it up. Turn with me again. I know we've done this, but we were focused on temple. Let's go back and focus on the other side that we mentioned but didn't talk about. Go back to section 37. Let's start in 37. The church was born in New York, right? We all know that. This church was born in New York. But we had to leave. Now look at section 38, just kind of as an interesting side note. Look at verse 13, section 38, verse 13. Why did we leave New York? Section 38, verse 13. Someday I'd like to know the rest of this story. We don't get the story here, but why did we leave New York? There was something brewing in secret chambers that was going to threaten either Joseph's life or all of their lives. And that young church that was just starting to blossom would be snuffed out. So the Lord says, get out of New York and go to Ohio. Go back to 37. Verse 1, he says, ye shall go to the Ohio. And he does mention in verse 1, and this because of the enemy and for your sake. So get away from a danger. And I have something that I need you in kind of a more safe environment in order to roll out. So verse 1, verse 3, I command you to assemble at the Ohio. Now back in verse 38, this is the verse we read earlier in this class. We read verse 32. Why does he send them to the Ohio? He needed them out of New York where their lives were threatened and in an established place so that he could do what? Give them the law. And number two? endow them. Now that wasn't a personal endowment. That was a church endowment. Remember, we talked about the keys that came in the Kirtland temple. We spent several weeks talking about Moses, Elias, and Elijah, and how we were endowed with power as a people. That was the moment we inherited the Abrahamic responsibility to take care of all of the earth. That was what we emphasized the first time. Now I want to emphasize that first point. Why did he send them to Ohio? 
to give them a law. In other words, he sent Joseph Smith up to Sinai. And Joseph Smith came down with tablets. Now, I don't, I don't want this to come across as critical. I don't know. I don't mean it as critical. But I don't know very many Latter-day Saints that could tell me where the law of the church is located. He sent them to Ohio and said, I'm going to give you the law. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has a law. Elevated beyond, beyond what Moses was given. We have a law. Now, what fascinates me, anyone tell me the third covenant you make in the endowment? Obedience, sacrifice, law of the gospel. It's clearly hinting at a law of the gospel. And the Lord says, I'm going to give you the law. So allow me to plead with you to be more aware of our law. We have a law. Does anyone know what section it is? 42. <laughs> Memorize that number, section 42. Everyone turn to 42. Now, not all sections are of equal worth, and 42 is special. This is a special section, and this ought to be elevated. This ought to be highlighted. It ought to come with bells and whistles around it. What does Joseph Smith, look at the section heading. What does Joseph Smith call section 42? This section embraces the law of the church. Now, we should see kind of a connection to the old law. I don't think we should, I don't think anyone would expect this to be completely severed of the old law. So allow me to present 10 thou shouts. There's more, but let me present 10 thou shouts, or sometimes they're thou shalt nots. But allow me to talk about the law of the church. And I'm going to do it on a soapbox. I totally admit I'm on a soapbox because it frustrates me that we've been given a law and we don't talk about it and we don't even know that it's there and we don't talk about the points of the law that he specifically called out. So allow me to just be passionate about this and plead with you to become experts in the modern day law. Can anyone name all 10 commandments? You name the 10? Most of you should be able to name the 10, right? How many of you could get at least seven of the 10? Okay. How many of you could give me 10 commandments and as found in section 42? I want the church, I want us to be as familiar with the modern day law as we are with the Ten Commandments. So I would expect, before I even opened up section 45, I would expect to kind of a blending of the old into the new. So let's start with a couple old that are just as true today as they ever were. So everyone turn to section 42. And if you want to draw bells and whistles and highlight this, I would at least highlight in very heavy colors 
that Joseph Smith designates that this embraces the law of the church. All right. Let me just do, I don't want to come across as here are the Ten Commandments, because there's a lot more here than Ten Commandments. But just humor me today and allow me to present ten modern commandments. Number one, verse 18. Let's be absolutely clear. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not kill. Now, I think what, what follows that is unique to members of the church. Did Lamoni kill and get baptized? Sure seems to be, right? Lamoni's father. But I think what follows in verse 18 is for members of the church who have full understanding about the gospel plan. If members of the church kill, what does it say? There is no forgiveness in this world, nor in the world to come. Now, there's an interesting verse about King David. Section 132 suggests that King David has fallen from his kingdom. Some people read that as to say David will not be in the celestial kingdom. I don't know. But let's be very clear. For members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, there is no forgiveness for murder. Thou shalt not kill. The next one, again, you would totally expect this list. How about verse 20? Again, a repeat from the old law. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not steal. Okay, that's a no-brainer. Don't steal. Don't take something that's not yours. Don't take something that doesn't belong to you. And then in verse 21, I love the improved, like, instead of thou shalt not bear false witness, he just simply says, thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not lie. Now look at that list. That's kind of familiar, right? Don't kill, don't steal, don't go. Going on this pattern, what would you expect him to say next? Don't look, don't look. Which one matches this? Don't steal, don't kill, don't lie, and don't commit adultery. But what I love is welcome to the modern law. He kicks it up a notch. Instead of the thou shalt not, what I love is we get a thou shalt. Instead of this is what you don't do, he says, this is what you do. And it's one of the greatest laws of the modern church. Instead of don't commit adultery, what's the higher, newer, more holier law? Thou shalt love thy, and to a woman he would say, husband, thou shalt love thy spouse. Now watch what he does. What does he do? With all thy heart. Why is that unusual? Do you understand what he just did? Do you remember when Jesus summarized the commandments into two commandments? What were they? A scribe came and says, what's the first and the great commandment? He says, the first, the greatest of all commandments is thou shalt love God at what level? What level do you love God? 
Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. That level of love is reserved for God. You love God with all your heart. Then he said the second commandment was like unto it. Thou shalt love your neighbor. Now what level of love is for my neighbor? As thyself. Not this level, right? As thyself. Now that's a pretty high level of love, isn't it? If I thought about my neighbor as often as I thought about myself, what kind of neighbor would I be? Pretty darn good neighbor. That's a pretty high level of love, but it's not this level. But in our day, God took one neighbor, one human, and bumped that human up to what level? That level. As I read the scriptures, there's only two people I am commanded to love with all my heart. Who are they? God and spouse. There's number four. Thou shalt love thy spouse. Now let's keep going. Thou shalt love thy spouse with all thy heart, might, mind, and strength, and... Cleave unto her and unto none else. Now, we won't spend a lot of time here. But allow me to suggest, remember our discussion on temple, why we build temples? Do you remember how we talked about chapel covenants and then temple covenants? Chapel covenants are a transition from telestial to terrestrial. And temple covenants are a transition from terrestrial to celestial. What is, the temp- what is the chapel version of the law of chastity? You made a covenant to live the law of chastity the day you got baptized. You repeated that covenant every time you partook of the sacrament. And if you ever broke the law of chastity, what could you not do? You couldn't partake of the sacrament because you were in violation of that covenant. The the chapel law of chastity is to not do the act. So now tell me, what's the temple version? You remake that covenant in the temple. It's not a repeat, it's it's an elevation. So if chapel covenants are outward, tell me what the temple version of the law of chastity is. Of soul symbols and sacraments. And uh, in it, he talks about how, like, once you're married, um, like, that is, like, the, like, the single form of, like, unitedness. Because that's, like, when you're fully united as husband and wife in love and your, uh, like, goals and in your futures. Like, that is when, like, it's almost, I don't know, I, I read it, like, two weeks ago, and I can't remember exactly what he says. But he's like, uh, it's almost like a covenant because that is as close as you can get to a single person. Yep. He's very blunt and he says men and women were made to fit together. Physically, they fit together. And his point is that's a symbol. And the symbol is the coming together of human beings, two human beings, heart, mind, body, soul, 
the Latter-day Saint law is to not just avoid a violation of the law of chastity. It is to cleave unto your spouse in your head, in your heart, with your words, with your eyes, and with what you click on. I cleave unto her and none else. Now, here's what fascinates me. Which do you make first? Which covenant do you make first? The law of chastity or sealing? Is anyone sealed to a spouse when they make the law of chastity, when they covenant the law of chastity? Isn't that fascinating? What's the Lord saying? This is something you can do even before you're married. You can cleave in heart, head, mind to a future spouse even before you have a physical spouse. The Latter-day Saint law of chastity has been elevated to way more than just don't commit an act. It is cleave unto her and none else. Not a photograph of someone else, not them actuals. You cleave unto her and none else. And you do it out of love, right? You do it out of love. I love her with all my heart. That means no one else gets my heart. She does or he does. You see that law? Boy, I love that one. Latter-day Saints should be known as what? What should distinguish the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? Total fidelity in action, in thought, in attitude, in desire. Thou shalt love thy spouse with all thy heart and shall cleave unto them and none else. Don't you love it? Okay, let's kick up the next one. Man, I wish we talked more about this one. If the Latter-day Saints are distinguished by this law, then what kind of people should we be? Let's go to verse 27. Thou shalt not speak evil of thy neighbor, nor do him any harm. How are we doing as a church? If this is a distinguishing commandment given to the church, how are we doing? <laughs> are we 98 and we need to kick it up to 99? Is that what you're saying, Caitlin? That the church is 98? We're horrible. We are horrible. And yet right there in our print, the law of the church says, thou shalt not speak evil of thy neighbor, nor do him any harm. Now, let me balance that. I think we need to balance that because some people, I think, take that too far. And I've heard people say as a badge of honor, oh, she never said anything bad about anyone. 
There is a moment where I need to sit down my ch- with my children and talk about something that someone else did so that we learn from it, right? So in the spirit of that, can I just, I just feel like I have to balance this. Go to Moroni chapter 9, no, Mormon. Mormon chapter 9, verse thir- 31. I think this is the spirit of it. I don't think it's, well, you don't ever say anything negative about anyone. I think the commandment is don't speak evil that it does them harm. The balance of that is, do you think my children and I are having discussions about children massacres, about people who walk into schools and open fire? Should that be something my family and I are talking about? And so in the spirit of that, let's read section or Mormon 9.31. Anyone want to read this for me? Jay, would you read that? Condemn me not because of my, mine imperfections, neither my father because of his imperfections, neither them who have written before him, but rather give thanks unto God. Here we go, ready? Hath made manifest unto you our imperfections, that you may learn to be more wise than, than we have been. So I think there's room to sit down with your family or your friends and say, hey, I understand that so-and-so did this, and can we talk about that, and what do we learn? You know what I'm saying? But the commandment is to not do my neighbor harm. And I just feel like we need to pause and emphasize that. In the law of the church, he says, Thou shalt not speak evil of thy neighbor, nor do him any harm. Now, if I can just do one more thing, let me see if I can push that a little bit. I think what we do that causes harm is something specific. I've taught at numerous seminaries all over this valley and in other states. One thing I've always liked to do is I gather as often as I can with non-members at the school where I teach. I've had occasion to gather non-members and ask them about my students. What will you guys tell me about the Latter-day Saint students at this high school? I heard one word over and over and over and over again. Tell me what the word is. Judgmental. Our reputation, the reputation of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is that we are judgmental. We, 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 we have elevated our behavior to a higher level and we condemn everyone else who doesn't live at that level. So let me just point out, I think there's a key here. Turn with me to John chapter 8. I want to use Jesus as an illustration. John chapter 8. A woman taken in adultery. Now, is she guilty? Is she guilty? This woman was taken in adultery in the very act, and Jesus was asked to judge her. Master, Moses in the law says that such should be stoned. What do you say? Well, what did he say? She should be stoned, right? Tell me, he, what did he say? What was the answer to the question? She should be stoned, but you're not the ones to stone her. Did he judge her? Yes. What was her judgment? Violation of the law. This woman has violated the law. 
Now, did someone in that group qualify to throw a stone at her? Was there someone there who could have thrown a stone at her? He that is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her. Did someone qualify? Yes. And did that someone throw a stone? He judged her without what? Throwing the stone. He judged her without throwing the stone. Now, a moment later, everyone left because they were condemned and it was just Jesus and the woman. And when she finally looked up, he said, woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? And she said, no man, Lord. Now read verse 11 very carefully. John 8, verse 11. What did Jesus say to a woman who just committed sin? Tell me what he said. Neither, John 8, 11, neither do I condemn thee. Did he judge her? Yes. But what did he not do? Tell me what he didn't do. He didn't condemn. Anyone want to explain how you see the difference? Notice what does he say? Neither do I condemn thee. And then what did he say after that? Go and. In other words, what is he saying? You have sinned. You are in violation of the law. Stop doing that. Stop violating the law. But tell me what he didn't do. Now, here's the thing. With human beings, judgment and condemnation go hand in hand almost always. So when those non-members were, were criticizing the Latter-day Saints as being judgmental, do you know what I think they were saying? I think they were saying Mormons have a tendency to not judge. Mormons have a tendency to what? Condemn. Did Jesus judge? Yes. Did he condemn? Now look at the footnote. How did the woman walk away? This little exchange with Christ where she was judged of him. She was judged of him. And how did she walk away? Tell me how she walked away. You see it in the footnote? What does the footnote say? Joseph Smith change. Woman glorified God. Glorified God. She was judged and she walked away lifted because she wasn't what? condemned now what's the commandment if i could paraphrase the command back in section 42 what's the commandment thou shalt not condemn thy neighbor which does him harm allow me to bring that to your attention listed as one of the fundamental commandments of the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints is thou shalt not speak evil of thy neighbor, nor do him any harm. Somehow, somewhere, we have to stop the condemnation. We have to be able to say, thank you, but I don't think your standards and my standards are this. I don't think we should date and marry.
but we usually do it how? You. No way. And it comes across as condemnation. Somehow we have to be more like Christ who can say, go and sin no more and have her walk away uplifted because there was no condemnation. Thou shalt not speak evil. of thy neighbor. Now, anyone who needs to repent, let's just repent. But wouldn't it be wonderful if the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints were distinguished by that characteristic? What, a, what, would, what difference would that make in the church today if we were distinguished by that characteristic? All right, let's move on. Back to section 42. Brandon, we're in section 42, which if you look at the section heading, what does Joseph Smith call it? The law of the church. The law of the church. This is the law of the church. Verse 27 was number five. Thou shalt not speak evil of thy neighbor, nor do him any harm. All right, let's get to the big one. I don't think we're going to get past this one. But let's start it. <clears throat> Verse 30. Right there as a pinnacle of the commandments. Tell me what he says. If you're going to be a Latter-day Saint, if you join the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, if you want to be part of this kingdom, a fundamental identifying characteristic of you will be what? You will remember the people who have need and you will consecrate. consecrate. You will remember the poor. I want to break that down into two. Allow me to break it into two. Thou shalt remember the poor. Thou shalt remember the poor. You will be aware of the poor. You will search for the poor. You will seek out the poor. Now, coming out of Old Testament, how many times, if you read the Old Testament, how many times did the Old Testament point out that Jehovah is the God of widows and orphans. It was everywhere, wasn't it? He is the God of widows and orphans. And his people look out for widows and orphans. His people are distinguished for remembering the poor, looking for them, seeking them. Where are they? Now, let me read a very haunting passage from the New Testament. It's coming up in Come, Follow Me. And I hope it haunts you as much as it haunts me. Turn to Luke chapter 19. Now, some of you call him Zacchaeus. I'm going to call him Zacchaeus. So Luke chapter 19, let's talk about Zacchaeus. 
Jesus comes into Jericho. He's on his way back to Jerusalem for his final week. He will be crucified within a week and a day. He comes into Jericho. And there was a man named Zacchaeus, verse 2. Now, Zacchaeus has three strikes against him. Number one, he's a publican. He's a tax collector. Now, tell me how the Jews felt about someone who collected taxes for Rome. If your job is to collect taxes for Rome, you are seen as a traitor, right? Not only is he a publican, he's chief among the publicans. Strike number two, he's rich, which means he's gotten rich off of my taxes. Now, the way tax collecting worked back then is I had to turn in X amount of dollars to Rome. So if I could charge you more than that, I got to keep the excess. So if I owe them 50 and I charge you 60, I keep 10. That's how collecting taxes went. So if I'm a rich tax collector, what's the, well, at least what do they believe? He's padded his pocket by overinflating my taxes. Strike two. Strike three is verse three. He's little of stature. Now, you got to see this symbolically. He wants to see Jesus in verse 3, and he can't because of the press. Draw a picture of that. Tell me why he can't see Jesus. Do you see it? So here's Jesus, and here's Zacchaeus. Why can't he see Jesus? Because he's on the outside of the circle, right? He's on the outside of the circle. Where have they put the weirdo, the freak, the one they don't like? Outside the circle. Now, allow me to push you a little bit. I think you all recognize, I hope you all recognize, maybe not, but many of you will recognize the symbol of the compass. Now, when I say compass, my guess is what image comes to mind? Did we do this? We did compass and square, right? Okay, so I can just jump right that. Do you remember the image of the compass? The point? The circle? Okay. That's right. I remember we did that. That just saved me about 10 minutes. Thank goodness. I want you to think of a moment in the temple where we make a circle. What is the point that formed that circle? First, it's an altar, right? And the altar would symbolize what? What would the altar in the temple symbolize? Who was sacrificed on that altar? Okay, so the altar represents the sacrifice of Christ. When we form that circle, what do we put on the sacrifice of Christ? The, of, of broken people. In other words, we're supposed to put broken people where? In the middle of the circle. We're supposed to put broken people on Jesus. And where have they put broken people? Where did they put Zacchaeus? 
And where did you and your LDS friends put the broken people when you were in high school? We as a people have a tendency to put outsiders and strangers and people who don't belong where? On the outside of the circle. And Zacchaeus is on the outside of the circle. My sweet wife, who I love more than anyone on this, hum on this planet, transferred from a very small two-way high school to a very large high school here in Salt Lake. And no one noticed. She ate lunch alone. Do you know how much it haunts me to think of my wife in high school, her senior year, eating lunch outside the circle? Because no one put her on the inside and she was broken. I wish I could go back in time and rush over to that high school. I'd find her. I would find her because I don't want her on the outside of the circle anymore. It's one of the most haunting images I have is my wife on the outside of the circle when she was most broken and no one bothered to put her in the middle. So Zacchaeus is on the outside of the circle. Now watch what Jesus says. There is one word here that haunts me. Luke chapter 19, verse 5. When Jesus came to the place, unlike anyone else, tell me what he did. I want you to find two words. Highlight the two words. What did Jesus do that no one else did? Before saw, he looked and saw. Circle those words. He looked and saw. Jesus was looking. And when you look, you see. Guess what? In that gym tonight are a whole bunch of Zacchaeuses. And they are outside the circle. And if you walk out that door and look, you will see. There might be some inside this room. I know they're everywhere. The Zacchaeuses who are broken. And we've pushed them to the outside of the circle. But our covenants are to push, put them where? Jesus looked and saw. And then what does he say? Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must. That's the word that haunts me. Today I must abide at thy house. Why the word must? Why would he say, Zacchaeus, come down, because I must eat with you. What is he saying with the word must? I must, because no one else would. I would love to think that if Jesus came to my ward on a Sabbath day, he would come into the chapel. I'd love to think Jesus would come into the chapel. But do you know what I think he'd say to us? I can't. I can't come visit you because why? What would he say? What, what would be his next phrase? I can't come into the chapel and be with you because I must. 
go find Zacchaeus. And what would he be kindly telling us? I must because you didn't. Now, what is the commandment? Thou shalt remember the poor. Can I, would you allow me a little liberty? And I'm not trying to correct the doctrine and covenants, but let's put those two words in. Thou shalt, give me the words. Look and see. That's the commandment. I need a people who look for and see who's broken. Isn't it hypocritical to stand in that temple in a circle and put broken people on Jesus and then go outside and keep the broken people on the outside of the circle. Thou shalt look for them and see them. I think we all need to repent. I do. They're everywhere and they're hurting and they need someone to put them on his sacrifice, on his atonement, to put them in the middle of the circle. I don't know if you know this hymn. Did you guys sing this when you were in primary? I can't blow this up very well, so I apologize, but That's his last. Maybe we'll just play it. How about I just play it and you watch it? Ready? Tell me if you've heard this children's hymn. Let me start it over.
Humidity sung that in primary. Beautiful, isn't it? That's the essence of the gospel. And it's in the command, it's the modern day commandment. Thou wilt remember the poor. Thou wilt look and see. Can I just show you one more? I don't mean to beat this thing up, but oh, how I wish the church were known by these commandments. If, if we were distinguished for the love that we had for our spouses, for how we treated our neighbor, and for remembering and looking and seeing. What, how would that change the world if we were simply known by those characteristics? But don't you sense that's what Jesus wants in his church? Let me show you one more. Go to 3 Nephi. I think you've all quoted that beautiful phrase where Jesus says, I am the light that you should hold up, right? Have you quoted that before? I am the light that you should hold up. But I think we forget what he said right after that. When he said, I am the light that you should hold up. Go to 3 Nephi 18. Book of Mormon, 3 Nephi 18. Verse 24. Behold, or therefore, hold up your light that it may shine unto the world. Behold, I am the light which ye should hold up, that which ye have seen me do. Now, I think we, we, we take the seen me do as everything he did. That's not what he's talking about. He says, hold up the light. I'm the light that you should hold up what I've done. And then he lists two things. He just says, I want you to do these two things. What are the two things he wants us to do? Caitlin, read the rest of 24 and then 25. Behold, you see that I have said unto the Father, and ye have all witnessed, and ye have seen that I have commanded that none of you should go away, but rather have commanded that you should come unto me Okay, so when he says, hold up the light, what, is he, what two actions was he really talking about? I prayed for everyone, each one of you. I prayed for the broken people. And secondly, I pulled them in. I didn't push any of them away. Do you think we can say of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we haven't pushed anyone away? I don't think we can say that yet, can we? Jesus says, those are the two things. I prayed for everyone, and I didn't push anyone away. That's what I want you to hold up and do. Do you see the commandment? Thou shalt look and see the poor. Find them. Because if you don't, he'll have to do it. But he shouldn't have to do it, right? Because we should be doing it. Thoughts? Everyone's kind of sitting back, kind of subdued. <laughs> so talk to me about it. Tell me what you're thinking. I almost feel like a fear of doing that. Yeah. Like a nervousness, something holding me back from actually making that effort to bring people up. Yep, and that's very legitimate, right? And and hence, I hear Jesus out of the back of my voice, in the back of my head, saying, 
I must because they were nervous, which would suggest he wasn't nervous. Who did he eat with? Who did Jesus eat with to the condemnation of the Pharisees? Scribes and parents. Yep, the publicans, the sinners and the publicans. He wasn't afraid to. I think there's some lessons for all of us there. Caitlin. Oh, that's another one. We got to do that one. We got to do that one. Keep talking. Uh, I'm so glad you brought that up. I'm so glad. That's such a perfect illustration because the heart and soul of the gospel. In fact, go ahead. Hold on one second. I just want you want to comment on this. Okay, go ahead. Let's read it. You, you just, you're just, it's so beautiful. Let's go to chapter 20, um, 27. Yep, 27. So 22, 23, and 24. I want to point out three things they did. So, so here's, here's the cool club, right? Here's the cool club of the Nephites. Here's the bad guys of the Lamanites. And a group of these guys... You know, Ammon says, Let's, let, let me take you home. And what do they say? No way. Why? They'll never let us in their circle. Isn't that what they were afraid of? Can you imagine joining this church today? Can you imagine being a convert? They'll never let me in. They'll never let me in. Now, tw 22, 23, and 24, tell me what three things they do. First of all, number one, we will give up our best land. We will give up our best land. End of verse 22, for our brethren. We will give up our best land for our brethren. And then verse 23, we will draw a circle around. Do you see the symbolism? We will draw a circle around them. Do you see the circle in the temple? We will draw a circle around them and keep them safe. We'll give up our best land. We will consider them our brethren and we will draw a circle around them. That is the gospel. That's it. That's the gospel. That's the commandment. Thou shalt not speak evil of thy neighbor, nor do him any harm. Thou wilt remember the poor. Thou wilt look and see. <sighs> okay. Anything else you want to add? There is no way we can do seven. How about we do seven next week and we do eight? Because what was seven? In that same verse, thou 
thou wilt remember the poor and... So number seven is thou shalt consecrate. We'll do, we'll do the law of consecration next week because that's no way a 20-minute discussion. But how about we do number eight? Because I think we can do eight in 20 minutes. Eight is an hours and hours and hours of discussion, but I think we can at least talk briefly about it in 20 minutes because this is such a Book of Mormon subject. So let's jump to verse 40. Back to Alma, or back to Doctrine and Covenants 42. <clears throat> verse 40. Caitlin, what are you saying? My phone is going to die. Is it lightning or USB-C? Sorry, my son took it out of my bag. I just had a portable charger I was going to give you. Okay, let's do 40. <laughs> you look and see, and then we'll just everything will just be fine. All right. Doctrine and Covenants 42, verse 40, right there in the law of the church. A distinguishing characteristic of Latter-day Saints should be what? Thou shalt not be proud in thy heart. What is... Command, what are we commanded not to do? The law of the church. Don't be proud. Don't be proud. I love that one. Thou shalt not be proud in thine hearts. Now, allow me to very... Let's do a two-hour discussion in just 15, 20 minutes. Let's give us, let me give you the Book of Mormon's definition of pride. This isn't a Book of Mormon class. Someday take a Book of Mormon class and let's talk about pride in the Book of Mormon. Go to Jacob chapter 2, verse 13. Absolute favorite verse in, in defining pride is this verse right here. I think we can boil pride down to three statements. Jacob chapter 2, verse 13. Pride is one, two, Three. And one is one word. What word in verse 13 is the essence of pride? Is it abundantly? Is pride when you have lots of something? If that's the case, then Jesus is proud, right? Abundance isn't the problem. The lifted up is going to be this one. Why are we lifted up? Because we think we're better. And why do we think we're better? If you were to ask me one word that defines what pride is, it's this word. More. Why? Why is that where pride begins? It's the comparison. We're not proud of being rich. We're proud of being rich-er. Pretty-er. More talented. 
It's the more. That's where it starts. It starts when you have something that someone else doesn't have. I am more. Now, end of verse 13, as soon as you have a more, tell me what you do. End of verse 13. You think you're better. As soon as you have more, you think you're better. And when you think you're better, you do two things. Number three has two parts. What do I do to them? What's the P word I do to you? I persecute. And what do I do to me? Lift. There's pride. I have more. I'm better. I persecute. I have more. I'm better. I persecute. So if I have more money and I think I'm better, how do I persecute you? I'm going to buy a car that you can't afford and I'm going to drive it right in front of you. It's my way of saying, ha, ha, ha. That's, why, that's how I persecute. If I have more and I think I'm better, how am I going to persecute? I'm going to talk about it all the time. It's how I persecute. We all do it. I have more. I'm better, and we persecute. And sometimes it's even the opposite. It's still pride if I say, you have more, therefore you're better, and who do I persecute? That's not humility. That's pride. Same formula. Pride is more, better, persecute. So what's the antidote? Give me a handful of, very quickly, give me 17 through 20. Give me some of the antidotes for pride from the Book of Mormon. If, I, if my pride is I have more, if I have more, therefore I'm better, and I persecute you, what are some of the antidotes? In 17 through 20, what are some of the antidotes? Think of your brethren like unto yourself. In other words, when I look at me, I look for my more. How do you stay humble when you have more? You look for their more. It's very hard to think I'm better because I have more when you, in some other area, you have more. Keep your finger in Jacob. Let me show you an example of that. Go to Mosiah chapter 9, verse 1. What humbled Zenith? Zenith was sent as a spy. Spies go in there looking for how to destroy, how to persecute. What humbled Zenith? Mosiah chapter 9, verse 1. What humbled Zenith? What totally changed things for Zenith? When I saw that which was good among them, I didn't want to destroy them. Find their more. Before you think you're better than someone else because you have more, find their more. I love that advice. Think of your brethren like unto yourself. Find their more. Do you remember in high school how the big tough athletes thought they were so much better than the geeky nerds? And they threw them in the bathrooms? They physically persecuted them because they thought they were better. 
And now those geeky nerds are billionaire tech people who think they're better than the athletes who persecuted them. And so now they are throwing their money in their athlete. You know, it's the same thing. It's same pride. So what if the big tough athletes had seen how smart these guys are? And most likely what they will do in this world. Would they have been so inclined to persecute them? And what if the geeky nerd, and I say that affectionately as a compliment, if the geeky nerd saw how talented these athletes were and what they could do athletically, would they be as inclined to think they're better? Find their more. Give me another one. 17 through 20. I have a question. So you, you said that with pride, it can be more better and persecute, but you also said that it could be the opposite as well. Like you think someone else is better, you think someone has more. So would that technically mean that you would fight your more? Yeah. If you were thinking that? Beautiful. Beautiful. If you have a tendency to tear yourself down, because you're constantly seeing that other people are better than you, whose more do you need to find? My more. I need to stop tearing myself down because God made something marvelous when he made me beautiful inside. Thank you. Let me give you another. We got to be really quick because I want to do one more thing with pride. But what does he say? What should I do with my more? If I have been given a more, verse 19, what should I be doing with it? 18 or 19, wherever it is. I should be using my more to do what? Bless people. What am I using my more to do? Persecute people. Why did God give me a more? So I could bless people. Come on, people. Use your more to bless. If you have more of something, use your more to bless. Another antidote is kingdom of God first. If my priority is kingdom of God, I'm not going to be thinking I'm better. And then one more, verse 20. Do you find it in verse 20? Because this is going to lead into next week's discussion. Find it in verse 20. It's kind of silly to think I'm better because I have something that God gave me. In other words, why do I have a more? It's not me. It's him. Don't take pride in what he did in your life. He gave it. He could take it away. It's really his. We'll talk more about that next week. But you see how the Book of Mormon handles pride? Our primary scripture and one of its chief messages is to overcome pride. Now, let me give you the other Book of Mormon's message. In Helaman, we talk about a pride cycle. Let me use this board. I didn't write their antidotes. You can do that. Someday we'll talk about antidotes to pride. I just want to just emphasize why this is such a significant commandment. Let's talk about the pride cycle. Okay? Let's start up top with righteousness. What happens when someone decides, when a group of people decide to be righteous? They are going to be blessed. Now, those blessings are going to continue, and I'm going to draw a box here, until we hit 
prosperity. Now that becomes a critical moment. What do you do in prosperity? Now what's natural? What's natural? My prosperity causes me to think I'm better. So prosperity leads to pride. Pride is me, my greatness. It's all about me, which leads to sin. And sin, always, 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 one way or another, someday, sin will lead to pain. And again, another box. Pain is a critical decision. What does pain usually lead to? Humility. Humility. And humility usually leads to repentance. And we cycle over and over. How many times do they cycle in the Book of Mormon? How many times do they obey, obey, become prosperous, become prideful, sin, are wrecked, it makes them humble, they repent, and then they're righteous. And then they just, and then the Lord is like, okay, so the Book of Mormon is begging us to find a shortcut. Does anyone see a shortcut? What if prosperity made me humble? What if my reaction to prosperity was humility, gratitude? Thank you, Heavenly Father. What if my reaction to prosperity was humility? How would I cycle through this? What would I avoid? Pride, sin, and pain. Now, unfortunately, there's another cycle. There's another shortcut. And we see it all the time. Sometimes pride or pain causes people to say, why me? And they murmur. And pain leads to pride, which leads to more pain. Laman and Lemuel cycled this way, didn't they? So let me ask you a very, very fascinating question. What two decisions do I have in prosperity? What are my two decisions? Pride or humility? What are my two decisions in pain? Pride or humility? Same decisions. Now, tell me the Latter-day Saints don't have a history of both of these. Did we go through a period of great pain? And for the most part, how did the church respond in pain? For the most part, how did the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in its history respond in Missouri and in pain? How do we respond in pain? Typically humility. Unfortunately, how does the church typically respond in prosperity?
So my invitation to you as one of the modern day commandments is to check your pride. Find a way to check your pride. Choose humility in prosperity. And I believe, I think we could summarize, again, going back to our primary scripture of the restoration, let me take you back to what I think is clearly presented in the Book of Mormon. Go to Mosiah chapter 4. Mosiah chapter 4, don't read verse 11, go to verse 12. In verse 11, King Benjamin says, do this, do this one thing. Actually, it's two things, but bear with me. Do this one thing. Mosiah chapter 4, verse, 12, verse 11, he says, hey, everyone needs to do this one thing. Now, look at verse 12. If you do this... Verse 12, I say unto you, if you do this, what happens if I do that one thing in verse 11? If you read all of 12, all of 13, okay, read all of 12. If I do that one thing, me and God will be square, right? I'll always rejoice. I'll be filled with the love of God. I'll retain a remission of my sins. I'll grow in the knowledge and glory. If I do that one thing, would you say I'm keeping the first commandment? Now look at 13, 14, 15, and 16. If I do that one thing, will I be keeping the second commandment? I won't have a mind to injure one another. I'll live peaceably. I'll render unto every man. I'll teach my children. I'll teach them to walk in truth and soberness. I'll take care of the beggar. So it kind of sounds like this one thing is a cure-all, right? So go back to verse 11. What's the one thing? What's the one thing that would cause the rest of my life to all be square and right? Here's what I found. Remember two things. I have to do, the one thing I have to do is remember two things. What are the two things I have to remember? The greatness of God and the nothingness of man. So let me use a different color. What is choosing humility in both cases? In both pain and prosperity, choosing humility is God is great. Right? When, I'm, when I prosper, I remember that my blessings come from God. When I'm in pain, I remember that God will help me and he's greater than my problems. Humility is God is great. What is pride? In both cases, what is pride? I am great. I am great. This is what I did. I am great in pain says I don't deserve this. No one should, God shouldn't be treating me this way. In both cases, pain, or, uh, pride is that I am great. In both cases, humility is God is great. Hence the commandment, thou shalt not be proud in thy heart. In pain and in prosperity, 
Remember the greatness of God and your own nothingness. If you mix those up and I'm great and God is not, it's going to lead to pride. I bear you my testimony. We have been commanded to overcome our natural tendency for pride. It is the universal sin. We all have it. Pride is the only sin that makes everyone else sick except for the person who has it. So get rid of your pride. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt love thy spouse with all thy heart. Thou shalt not speak evil of thy neighbor, nor do him any harm. Thou wilt remember the poor. Thou wilt consecrate for them, and thou shalt not be proud in thy heart. And leave you with my testimony that God has given a law. May it mean something to you. May it be written in your heart. I worry that we're offending him because we don't talk about it or think about it or focus on it very much. He has given us a law. He's given us an expectation of how Latter-day Saints should live. And one of those is to stop condemning others. To find them, look for and find them and not condemn them and to not think we're better. Sometimes, what's our more? One of the most dangerous, prideful mores is I'm more righteous than you are. Therefore, I'm better. Do you see what God intended the Latter-day Saints to do? May we live that law. Going back to previous classes, when are we going to build the city? When are we going to build the city? When we live this law. There it is. And going to the temple, do you remember promising to obey the law of the gospel? There's a good chunk of it. And part of it is overcoming pride and remembering and looking for the poor, the broken, the needy. I say that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.